Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Big show ahead today. We'll start with Representative Alyssa Slotkin, a mid-Michigan Democrat, who announced today that she will seek the nomination for the U.S. Senate seat being vacated next year by Debbie Stabenow. We'll hear about her decision and talk with her about her current interest in the problems that Metro Detroiters are having with DTE and Consumers Energy. Then we'll talk with Representative Rashida Tlaib, who's also frustrated and angry at the constant outages. It's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. We want to spend much of today talking about the persistent outages from last week's storm. Still 168,000 people don't have power because of the ice and the high winds. The level of ire at DTE and consumers' energy is pretty high right now, not just among customers, but also among public officials. We're going to be joined by Representative Rashida Tlaib in a bit, who's going to talk about her frustration with DTE in particular and the kinds of things that she suggests would make this better. Uh, Nick Shrek, uh, an environmental lawyer who studies this issue pretty closely, is also going to join us and talk about what he thinks. But we also have some breaking news today, and so we've got to shift gears a little bit and have another discussion. This morning, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin announced that she will run to for the open Senate seat that will be left by Debbie Stabenow next year. We've got uh, Representative Slotkin with us. She represents Michigan's 7th Congressional District. Alyssa, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. And uh, congratulations on uh, making that decision. Uh, but before we even get to that, um, I, I want to talk about uh, the process that you used to come to this yeah. decision. Uh, you had said before that you were thinking about it. Uh, what tipped this in, in favor of, of making a run for this seat? Yeah, well, you know, the Senator Stabenow, who's, you know, done incredible work here in Michigan, surprised the heck out of me and, and I think lots of other people by not running again and announcing that in early January. So it took me by surprise, and I needed to just make sure I was not jumping into something without um, a clear understanding of what it would take to run a statewide campaign, without understanding a path to victory. I'm obviously interested in keeping this seat in Democratic hands, and so what's the, the data-based plan? But then, you know, what do people want to be hearing about and talking about and having their representatives fight for um, in a, on a statewide basis? So it's just been a ton of coffees, a ton of conversations. Um, a ton of visits with folks who are not in my current district, so a ton of time in Detroit and in the suburbs of Detroit. Um, and um, we're kicking off a listening tour here later this week in Detroit to officially sort of hear from people. But um, for me, it's just about making sure I under I don't go into something 
um, kind of uh, half-cocked and uh, a lot of conversations with people who, frankly, uh, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. So, so the Senate is a really different body than yeah. the House is. It's changed a lot, too, uh, over the, the, the kind of recent years. Um, I, I, I kind of feel like there are two different kinds of of people in the Senate, though. Uh, in some ways, um, there are folks who who really focus on their home state and uh, advocating for that home state in, in, in many different spaces. Um, and then there are folks who, who make it more about uh, kind of national issues and national mm. representation, and and I I feel like that's a choice that that people make mm. when they get to the Senate. Uh, what kind of Senate office they they want to have? I wonder if you've given uh, thought yet uh, to to what kind of senator you would want to be. Well, I think for me, um, you know, that you are elected by your state. So your first and primary obligation is to represent your state and advocate for your state's interests. And, um, you know, I think as a senator in one of 100, of course, you're asked to comment on lots of national issues. But if you, frankly, lose your moorings and don't remember who it is who, that is your boss, which is the people of your state, you're in trouble, I think. And um, so, you know, I can only tell you past behavior is the best indicator of future behavior. I've been a congresswoman for four years and um, while I'm a national security person by expertise and am asked to weigh in on that um, a bunch, um, my first and primary focus has been on Michigan. And that, to me, is what I will do as a senator. Mm-hmm. So um, as you point out, you've got this incredible background in national security. Uh, is that going to be that, that expertise, uh, kind of a centerpiece of, of your campaign to Michiganders or are there other issues that you really want to focus on? Yeah, I mean, look, because you're my background as a CIA officer and at the Pentagon and, you know, the people, uh, you know, will always, I think, come to me for national security issues. But um, for me, it's really been about redefining what we mean by homeland security, right? If you can't live a middle class life, if you can't afford to take your kids on a vacation every couple of years, can't afford to have a little place up north on a salary, um, even though you do everything right, work 40 hours a week and stay out of trouble, something is wrong. And for me, if we don't have a strong middle class, um, that is not good for the economic security of the United States. So I think it's, a, it's for me, it's just been a real redefinition. And that was brought home a couple of weeks ago, right, when we had what's, for me, my second school shooting in my district mm-hmm. um, at MSU, right? protecting our kids in their sanctuaries. I can't think of something that is more fundamental to homeland security. Um, and it's just a, a, a sort of rethinking of what we mean by physical security. It's not just security from a terrorist group or from, you know, a, a, a nation state that's an adversary. It's about security at home for the people who live here. And that's, to me, um, much more prevalent for people than any national security issue. We're talking with Representative Alyssa Slotkin. She's a Democratic congresswoman who represents Michigan's 7th congressional district. She announced today that she will seek the Democratic nomination for the open Senate seat that we'll have here uh, in Michigan next year when uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow steps down. We're talking about that decision. I'm also going to ask her about the persistent outages uh, here uh, in Michigan 
with the energy companies. Lots of people really concerned about how long it's taking to get power back to everybody. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Uh, if you've got questions for Representative Slotkin as she prepares uh, her campaign for Senate or want to talk about uh, the energy issues that we have, we're going to be talking about that all show today, even after uh, Representative Slotkin has to leave us. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Anthony in Southwest. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you. I hope uh, the next senator would prioritize the health care. And, you know, I know that has some resonance with Representative Slotkin and her family, but it makes me wonder why I've never heard her support a universal plan such as Medicare for All. And then just another note, you know, I, that you mentioned the national security expertise. You know, I even question why you call that expertise. You know, Representative Slotkin uh, puts that up as a merit on her record that she was in Iraq and Afghanistan. Those are disgusting parts of our recent history. And, you know, I don't think our biggest threats are Russia and China. I think there are people who want to go to war like Representative Slotkin. Hmm. Well, Anthony, I appreciate that that perspective, and and I'll give Representative Slotkin a, a chance to answer. Uh, there are folks who believe that the military-industrial complex here in our country and the focus on militarization and things like that is is a problem. How do you answer that, uh, Alyssa? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because so much for me is connected back to 9-11 and the run-up to it, first the, the war in Afghanistan, but then really the war in Iraq. Um, I was in New York City on my second day of grad school when 9-11 happened, and that was a major in or out moment for me. I knew by the end of the day I wanted to go into national security um, and protect my country because that was such a searing experience. Um, but as the, the year went on um, after 9-11 um, and, frankly, the, the run-up to the Iraq war, there were major protests in New York City where I was living against the war in Iraq. And I was already someone who had lived in the Middle East, who had worked in the Middle East. So I protested the war, right? Anyone who knew the Middle East knew that it was crazy to do a major land war into a place like Iraq. Um, And to be honest, once we went in um, and the situation was done, I mean, that was before I got in the government. For me, I wanted to at least try and get out of the situation in as decent a way possible with the least amount of bloodshed. Um, so I spent my life working alongside the military um, so that we could try and fix um, the problem that we created by going in. Um, and uh, I worked, ended up working for whoever was my commander-in-chief, right? I worked, yes, um, for Bush when he was in power, but then I worked for Obama and was there the first day at the White House that he was sworn in. So, um, And I would say um, just very personally, um, people who work alongside the military our whole lives are the last people who want to go to war because it is our community and our fan- friends and our family who are the ones sent into those wars. Um, so I, I think the, the, I understand, um, certainly from, you know, reading my bio on paper why that's going to be something that people ask, but I feel very strongly that you know, I got into uh, this business to, to support my country, protect my country, um, and to stop bloodshed, to stop the bleeding, mm. um, uh, rather than promote it. 
So, um, so, so this is a this is a, a potential tension, I suppose, in in the campaign uh, for Senate. Uh, I, I think it's fair to describe you as uh, a pretty moderate Democrat, center left. Uh, a challenge, I suppose, could could come from somebody further left, uh, and and this could be one of the the issues that they that they raise is this uh, strain between the focus on national security uh, versus 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 uh, versus other issues have, have you have you considered uh, have you considered that quite yet well look I, I've been a congresswoman for four years and I think all you have to do is look at my record on the bills that I've written sponsored co-sponsored and voted on the vast majority have nothing to do with national security they have to do with preserving and expanding a middle class mm-hmm. in our in our state that invented it that invented the middle class. So I think like you just, it's one thing to sort of say, well, she's got this uh, background. It's another thing to say, here's what she spent her actual time on. Here's what she's done on constituent services. Here's how she's had more town halls than probably most elected officials in the state to be accessible. So, you know, that's, that's what I can, that's what I'll have to expose and, and bring to people. But in terms of a primary, that's our democratic process. Mm-hmm. I don't fault anyone for you know, looking at a primary and looking at getting in and, and having that um, conversation, that's how our system works. So that doesn't, that that's expected from my position. So so I also am curious about uh, the difference, of course, between running in a congressional district, which is a pretty small part of our state, and running statewide. And in particular, how you will introduce yourself, I guess, more fully to people mm-hmm. in Detroit. Uh, you have not yeah. had to to appeal to Detroiters uh, for uh, you know for the other campaigns that that, that you've run. Uh, what what's your message to Detroiters, who many of whom don't really know you um, and don't know what you stand for, uh, about what your your role in the Senate would be uh, advocating for us? Yeah. So I've represented mid-Michigan, so Lansing and kind of the surrounding counties for the last four years. Um, and so I, I've worked extremely hard to get to every corner of that district and hear from people in the city of Lansing um, and in rural places, rural small towns. Um, and I think that uh, my uh, my approach, just like when I became a congresswoman, was you can't talk about them without them. You got to go and listen to people and just sit with your mouth shut and say, look, I'm thinking of running for Senate or I'm running for Senate. What do you want out of your representative? What are you looking for? What are the key issues? If you were in my position, what's the one or two things you would focus on? So that's why we're starting, uh, you know, I've spent a ton of time talking to people in places like Detroit and the suburbs just in the past couple of weeks and thinking about running but we're officially kicking off our listening tour in Detroit this Thursday, and we'll be in Flint and then in Grand Rapids. Um, it's it's just a, a process of um, reaching out to people and saying, look, this is who I am. What do you care about? And tell me what you want me to fight for. Um, and that's what I did in my congressional uh, life, and that's what I will do as a Senate candidate. And in terms of what I, my, you know, the message and what I bring and what I'm focused on, again, like you should be able in the United States of America work 40 hours a week, keep yourself out of trouble, and do well and have your kids do better. The price of health care shouldn't be this massive drag factor and prescription drugs. You should be able to send your kids to school and be able to afford that. Do all of those things that our parents often did and sometimes our grandparents did, 
and then still have some left over to do something fun every so often. And that's become increasingly difficult. And so economic opportunity, jobs with dignity, health care you can afford, um, a pathway to education that empowers you. These are simple things that have become real complicated. That is what I want to focus on. And look, you're about to talk about uh, power outages and focused on clearly on the Detroit area, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not by accident that we have historic, longstanding problems with energy issues in the city of Detroit, right? There are systemic issues that have led to the fact that we have so many outages and such late service in those communities. So um, it's about taking on some of those structural issues in particular in Detroit that I want to really focus my conversation on. Okay. All right. Uh, Alyssa Slotkin, uh, Congresswoman from Michigan's 7th Congressional District, now candidate for the U.S. Senate. It was really great to have you here. Congratulations again on uh, your decision. I know putting yourself out there uh, <laughs> to, to campaign for office <laughs> is always a pretty difficult uh, thing to do. Uh, but uh, congratulations, and we'll look forward to hearing more about uh, how that goes. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah. When we come back, we are going to switch gears a bit and talk about all of these power outages that continue nearly a week after the snow and ice and wind of last week. Representative Rashida Tlaib, who represents us here in the city of Detroit, is going to join to talk about her absolute outrage at uh, DTE and Consumers Energy for their lack of speed getting these things back up and running. Uh, We'll also expand the conversation to talk about what we can do differently. Do we need a different way of providing electric and gas to uh, people in our state that would be more reliable and less focused on private profit? Uh, We'll also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on Twitter. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go and hashtag us and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad that you decided to join us. We want to talk now about the hundreds of thousands of people who lost power last week after an ice storm with moderately high winds. Uh, Lots of people still don't have power as DTE and consumers, the two companies who provide electricity and gas here in Michigan, scramble to get things reconnected. This is something that, of course, is happening more frequently, and the outages seem to last longer. Part of that clearly is about the grid that we rely on to conduct electricity, in particular to uh, all of our homes. But how much of it has to do with the ownership structure of those utilities. Uh, DTE is a publicly traded company, but it is 
got a private profit motive. Same thing with consumers. What do we do better if we had publicly owned utilities here in Michigan? And how would we make that switch? That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. We want to talk uh, not just about what's going on with the outages and the experience that people are having uh, trying to figure out how to keep food in their houses and keep warm without electricity. But we also want to talk about how can we do better? What would we do to make this all go away? I want to welcome Con- Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is a Democrat from Detroit. She represents the 12th district in Congress to the conversation. If you know Rashida or have been following her on social, you know how frustrated she is with the outages and with the companies that provide us power. Rashida, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. So uh, you see DTE as responsible for these power outages. You see them as responsible for the slow pace of reconnection. At the same time, this was a kind of rare ice storm with uh, moderately high winds. Um, Talk about why you place the blame with DTE. I mean, they're ultimately responsible for this critical service to all of us. But know this, you know, there's a map that I shared online because I wanted folks to see, you know, when I saw Art Reyes, who leads We the People uh, of, of Michigan, who just did a report last year, a very telling report about DTE's negligence, um, and also, you know, some of the tactics they put in place to try to gaslight people to believe that, you know, it's the storms and not the, also the responsibility of them being re- able to reinvest in their into the grid. But, you know, there were storms all around the country. And if you just look at the Midwest region, mm-hmm. you saw the map. I mean, it had us, Michigan, with nearly a million people out. Illinois also had similar storms in Wisconsin. Illinois, I think it was 81,000 people out of uh, an outage, uh, as well as Wisconsin, it was like 60,000. Literally, Michigan, Michigan is nearly a million people without power. Um, that doesn't even include, you know, the hundreds of thousands that are consumer energy uh, outage as well. But it's very telling to see that nearly a million people in Michigan without power, you know, even though the storms, you know, swept the country. But Michigan's burnout, you know, power outages were among literally uh, the highest uh, among all those states. And why is that true? So so I, I did a little research about um, DCE and its finances. Uh, I saw you reporting about that as well on social media uh, over the weekend. This is a company that made more than a billion dollars uh, yeah. last year. And when I say made, that literally is their net income or their profit. That's not revenue. They made a billion dollars. Um, how much of that should be reinvested in upgrading the grid? I mean, it's a for-profit company. It has responsibility to shareholders, and obviously its executives also uh, are incentivized pretty heavily uh, for, for, for performance, like making money. So uh, what's the process, I guess, of, of, of making sure that enough of that goes back into making the service itself better instead of just those folks who invest in DTE a little richer? You know, I thought it was the Michigan Public Service Commission's job to make sure an investor-owned private company that, again, uh, has to answer to shareholders, as you say, not our customers. Uh, But they're the ones who have to 
uh, they're the government entity that we all go to to hold this company accountable. And it's unfortunate, but you know, we all know that DTE has raised rates close to, you know, they made, I think, $770 million since 2015. I don't even know afterwards. I think it was even uh, higher now. But this is like the second highest rate increase uh, by any utility company in the country. And they even got over $200 million in CARE Act funds. These are COVID dollars. Yet DTE still has one of the most unreliable electrical grids that contributes to, you know, much harmful negative impact on our residents in Michigan. You know, uh, the, the 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 commission just continues to allow them to increase rates. They also have defined in a way that if you know somebody gets spoiled groceries and everything, they actually have it in the, that it has to be some sort of quote reasonable. And the way they define it is oh three days. So you're you're out of electricity for three days. You get twenty five dollars from DTE. 25. Do you know how hard it is to tell a resident that all their groceries, even with the cost of groceries mm-hmm. increasing, that they're only going to get $25? That's the Michigan Service Commission needs to step up and do more. You know, we had one public hearing. We stopped the 8% increase request that they had last year. But guess what? They just now, this month, asked for not only an increase of close to it's going to be like a 14% residential rate increase. On February 10th, they asked the Michigan Public Service Commission for yet another increase that's going to bring another $622 million. But, Stephen, how do we know that's going to be invested back into the, into the grid? When I look at where they've invested in the past, especially in Detroit, you see commercial and industry getting more modernization and more attention by DTE than residential communities, especially those hardest hit you know, vulnerable communities that really don't have anywhere to go. They don't have the funds to go to a hotel. They don't have anywhere else to go to get resources when their groceries have spoiled. And so this just this past month alone, DT wants another 14% residential rate increase. And they sent out a notice to all my residents and to all their customers that this summer they're going to increase rates by 35% during the hours of 3 to 7 p.m., right. like they call them peak hours. Michigan Public Service Commission, if they're listening, our residents want public hearings on all these requests. They want to be part of the decision-making. They are ultimately the ones responsible to pull back on the profit-driven, you know, obviously, uh, obsession by DTE that is, again, prioritizing shareholders over their customers. We cannot continue to allow them to say and blame the trees and the weather. We know this weather is, is increasingly going to get worse in some days and i know growing up in growing up in detroit i've seen weather like this it's not this is not new to us stop telling us these are historic storms stop blaming the trees when we know you're not putting enough money in the maintenance and upgrading the grid because you are only focused on what you can provide for the shareholders mm-hmm. uh, we're talking with representative rashida talib she represents uh, michigan's 12th congressional district. Uh, She's a Democrat from Detroit. We're talking about DTE and consumers and all of the outages that persist nearly a week now after the ice storm uh, last week. We're talking about why that continues to happen, why the grid doesn't get upgraded to the point where we have fewer outages, but also 
why it takes so long to get people uh, reconnected. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call and let us know, first of all, do you have power? Are you part of the 168,000 Michiganders who are still waiting for your utility company to reconnect things after the storm. Uh, Give us a sense of what kind of utility structure you feel comfortable with. Do you think the publicly owned model, which is in place in some states, uh, would be better and would better serve customers? Um, Also, give, give us a sense if you're okay with these being privately owned companies or publicly uh, traded companies, uh, but that we need better regulation uh, of them to make sure that they're investing more of their profits into fixing the grid than uh, than lining their own pockets. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Rashida, I want to talk a, a, a little about the Public Service Commission and how we could make it more, give it more teeth. Uh, each time this happens, I hear people really cry out about the, the, the weakness of the commission in dealing with these utility companies. What is the lever that we as citizens, I guess, need to pull to, to, to make sure that they can do their jobs better? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think it's important as folks call in to know this. You know, we look at thing, uh, systems like Lansing. Lansing has a public utility system, right? They had 10 people, 10 people without electricity. 10 people like, lost power, 10 right? Lost yeah. power. DTE, close to a million. Consumer energy, 200,000. So you see the difference when people are trying to make a case that Again, private-driven, investor-owned company running such a critical service to our people. There is it's broken, and how do we push away? I don't know. When ten percent or so, you know, I saw some figure like ten percent of our bill goes to shareholders. The fact that I see figures saying that modernization is going and prioritizing industry and commercial versus residential. I mean, these are things that continue to you know, for myself and others to say what can be done. I'll tell you this. When I see the report that we, the people of Michigan um, Environmental Justice Coalition, as well as Little Sis, they did a report last year. It's very telling, uh, you know, about uh, the harmful uh, decisions that they continue to make and how they are spending millions of dollars in donation to state elected folks that have to make those decisions. So you talk about Michigan Public Service Commission strengthening, you got to get through the legislature to get that done. And uh, when you talk about, you know, the appointments at Michigan Public Service Commission, look who's on there. These are folks, again, I don't know how much power they have, but they are the folks that I remember standing in front of them and telling them, you are literally the only people that can stop it. Because if they put a request in for increase, it automatically happens unless the Michigan Public Service Commission says no, mm-hmm. which they did last year, and they did the right thing. I mean, I think they gave them like a less than a point something percent, or it was much less than 8%. You also should know the tactics, and that's why a lot of Ann Arbor residents who have moved towards solar are very upset with DTE, that they're also pushing back against reimbursement rates for those that decide to go towards green infrastructure like solar energy and trying to diversify you know, our sources for uh, electricity in our state. They are also trying to reduce that, again, uh, pushing back so they can, again, have more profit uh, and, 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 and uh, not allow, again, for many of our residents to, to be able to 
providing something much more effective than the service that they provide us. Again, as people call in, as people talk, I want them to know more can be done if the legislature and the Michigan Public Service Commission stops them. And look at models like the Lansing Public Utility Company there. I mean, this is publicly owned. And when you see the storms that hit them, I mean, 10 people versus close to a million. Uh, that's a drastic difference, and, and that says something when, again, we know that they're reinvesting all the money in, uh, that they're getting from their customers into inside the grid so they can provide a quality, efficient service. To have the most unreliable, one of the most unreliable grids in the nation, Stephen, but the most expensive, yep. it's immoral. Yeah. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Norman in Bloomfield Hills. Norman, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I would like to say uh, to Elizabeth Slotkin, thank you. I, I'm looking forward to you running. And uh, also, both your guests, uh, you work hard for your constituents, and I appreciate that. Uh, but uh, the comment was, um, I've done landscaping now for 20 years of my life and uh, grew up on a farm. And uh, anyone with a sense of common sense, when you're driving down like Telegraph or most of our major roads, and you look at how they've been pruning the trees mm-hmm. to protect the wires, uh, anyone who knows basics of arborist, arbor, um, being an arborist would know that when you cut half a tree off and leave the other half hanging unbalanced, that tree is soon to be a danger. And those dangerous trees are part of the cause, which is, again, DTE has sent out these crews with inexperienced arborists leaving trees in dangerous situations that are taking down power lines Hmm. in three years, five years, just because it's not properly pruned and properly balanced. It's a requirement of a plant to maintain that balance. And if you knock it out of that balance, it's not going to be a good situation later down the road. Yeah. Norman, you know, I'm glad you called because I don't know that I've heard someone – explain that quite in that in that level of of detail that that the tree pruning that they're doing and DTE says consistently that they're doing more tree pruning you're saying that that the way that they're doing it actually exacerbates the problem because you're right if you if you cut a tree in an imbalanced way you make it more likely that it will fall or drop limbs and and that's what's been happening in in larger numbers um, to, to cause these 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 outages, uh, Rashida, I wonder if you have heard about the the tree pruning that's going on and whether it's actually making things worse, not better. Uh, I don't know. Again, this is not a company that comes and reports back to the public, right? Right. I think that's a question the Michigan Public Service Commission should have more public hearings. Bring them before the residents. Let us ask those questions. Because the other really important thing is, you know, I hear this, that we don't have enough workers. We don't have enough folks uh, doing maintenance. That, you know, residents ask me all the time, you know, we see these crews coming in from other states and everything. Is that because we're not replenishing? I mean, I know we do that, teacher, but what if the whole Midwest is having a storm? Do we not have the um, capacity or the internal in-state resources to address those uh, moments of outages and crises? I don't know. But again, I've, I've heard all kinds of stories. I mean, just know that I have a lot of folks that are really upset about them touching the trees, especially like this is not even touching the wire, Rashida. I, I told them, what am I, I don't know what to tell them because I don't really know how to talk to DTE when they keep saying to me it is the trees and then they throw those outages. I mean, they just, 
they keep gaslighting and sending out this information and blaming everybody else except the decisions they're making based on business than based on customer service and reliability and making sure that, again, Michigan, who has extreme weather and has for years, is, can handle, uh, you know, that their grid can handle uh, that kind of severe weather. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Norman, really appreciate the call and that information. Let's go next to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, yeah, the, it's, it's a bummer about the trees getting hacked. Um, you know, we've I've, I've lived here my whole life, um, never really had outages. Uh, nobody had a home generator. Now that seems to be what we all are supposed to do. But the reason why I'm calling is uh, the numbers aren't adding up. I mean, if, if they're netting a billion dollars a year, that's a, a thousand million. So I would say flat out 10%, a hundred million should go into putting uh, the lines underground. But um, the Congresswoman said that uh, they 10% goes to the shareholders. So if that's a hundred million right there. So where's the other 900 million going? It's a great question, um, Robert. And we don't know as much as maybe we should or could about that. Rashida, what's, what's the answer? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, again, I think this is something that Michigan public service commission should have uh, a public hearing about. Look, I heard that figure. I don't know if that's correct. I just know when I remember during the pandemic, for them to get, you know, millions of that, I mean, what, 200 or so millions of dollars of COVID dollars. And then I hear that they're still shutting people off, uh, that they're still shutting off notices. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is problematic. Not only that, you know, I had a resident text me while she's in her car warming up and she sent it to me, the date, the time, while she's on her day three of no power in her home gets a bill of over $500. Again, she lives in a working class community in Redford, and and she's getting a bill at the same time. So they know how to bill us. They know how to get their money from us, right? They know how to raise our rates. They seem to not be able to keep our power on, and they seem not to be able to answer a lot of our questions. They, you know, I don't want people to forget, don't wait for another outage. Don't wait for another time to contact your state legislators or to contact Michigan Public Service Commission. You know, I have a public utility bill. Everyone knows I am trying to move something so critical because this to me is critical. It has something to do with your medical. You're, I mean, people literally, uh, if the weather is, is, is incredibly severe, you know, you talk about cold weather, you talk about people with pets in the house. I mean, all of this. I don't want people uh, relying on a for-profit entity for those kinds of critical services, including the public utilities. They, I mean, utilities should be public. It is not something that, again, should be in the hands of folks that have literally meetings over and over again about how they can uh, increase the profit and how they can increase shareholder uh, pay it, yeah. payments. Yeah. I mean, one of the really frustrating dynamics for sure is the quickness with which DTE will shut you off if you fall behind uh, in paying them uh, and, and contrast to how long it's taking in some cases for people to get their their power back on. And there isn't uh, an equivalent response, an equivalent kinds of kind of consequence for the poor service that people are getting uh, as DTE is able to beat out if people don't have money uh, to pay. Uh, Rashida Talib, it's always great to have you here to talk about these and other issues. So uh, thank you very much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thank you.
All right. uh, When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about utilities and power and energy with Nick Schreck, who is the Associate Dean of Experiential Education and Associate Professor at Detroit Mercy School of Law. He is an environmental law expert and somebody who's thought a lot about things like the power grid, what we need to invest in it, how we need to change it so that things like this don't continue to happen. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDT. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've decided to join. Our power lines in Southeast Michigan are operated by DTE and Consumers Energy, two massive investor owned companies. But are these the best models for our utility companies? And if not, what are some better models? What kind of energy changes do we need to be making to set ourselves up for a future that will continue to have even more chaotic storms? To discuss these things, we now turn to Nick Schreck. He is the Associate Dean of Experiential Education and an Associate Professor at Detroit Mercy School of Law. Nick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Good to be with you. So I'm going to start here. The same question we just asked Congresswoman Tlaib. How much responsibility do you lay at the feet of DTE and consumers for not just the outages that happen, but for the length of time it's taking to get people back reconnected? As I said at the open, 168,000 people still don't have power. Uh, Are the power companies to blame? Well, first of all, Stephen, I'll say, um, you know, solidarity with my brothers and sisters who still do not have power because I am included in that number. Oh, you are. Uh, we, we lost uh, our power on Wednesday at 9 p.m. and oh. have still not been restored. And so I'm actually sitting, um, you know, in a parking lot where I could get decent cell service and charge my phone. Um, so so it's, oh. been, it's been an ordeal. And, and the length of the outage, that's the key point. I mean, power outages happen, you know, and we talked last August when we had that Remember that wind that came through and mm-hmm. many of us were without power for days, you know, three, four days. The length of the outage is really the problem. And when we look at Michigan compared to other states, we are, you know, in the bottom five nationally in terms of how long it takes to get power restored. And and that's just not good. I mean, particularly when you look at we don't have the type of natural disasters of some other states on that list, like, say, California with their wildfires and, you know, issues with avalanches and things. I and mean, we, we just don't have that type of, um, of uh, activity happening in our state. So, so yeah, it, it's bad. And so, so as far as responsibility, I mean, I will have to be, you know, forgiven for um, speaking perhaps a little bit more critically than I normally would because I'm <laughs> suffering <laughs> through a five-day power outage here. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the responsibility does lie with, with the utility company, and, and they – there are other states that do this better. There are other utility companies that do this better. Um, you know, I was looking at the numbers um, a few days ago, and you know, Florida, for instance, uh, they they get people's power back quickly, even in a state that is you know prone to major devastation from hurricanes. So um, it, it's a problem with a lack of investment in our our infrastructure and keeping our our grid updated, keeping our transmission lines updated. 
but it's also a challenge. You know, we talk about tree trimming and we can, we can go into all that as well, but, but really it's an infrastructure problem and it's a lack of upgrading our infrastructure to be able to, you know, withstand what is, yes, there was more ice than a typical ice storm, but, you know, this isn't like, you know, world-ending ice storm, right? Like we should, we should be able to, to uh, have some resiliency here to get through. I mean, if you think about it, it I mean, it was a storm and, and it, it obviously caused a lot of damage, but it could have been a much bigger storm and could yeah. have caused much greater damage. I can't imagine how things on the outage side and the the restoration side would have would have, would have looked if if this was a real you know a stem winder the kind of thing right. that we we have gotten in the past. Oh, hundred percent, and and that's one of the things that's so frustrating is that you know having been through this you know year after year. Um, you know, one of the callers mentioned, you know, people having generators and that type of thing. I went out and bought, this is seven years ago after a multi-day outage, went out and bought a, a small gas generator to be able to keep, you know, my refrigerator and freezer running because food spoilage is a huge issue and, and having to replace that is, is a real a real challenge. Um, but a lot of people can't afford to do that, right? I also, you know, we do have a fireplace in our home. So I've been, you know, burning, <laughs> burning through, I think I went through a whole face toward of firewood in, in the last four days, you know, trying to keep my pipes from freezing and keep the, the home at a, at a tolerable temperature. And, um, you know, those are all things that, you know, you're not going to get reimbursed from the utility company. And these are costs that they don't factor into, you know, they don't, they don't think about the, the stress it puts on people, the lack of sleep, the strain it takes to try and figure out how to do things you're not used to doing, like manually opening your garage door. And there's all these things, including the cost of, of gasoline for generators or, you know, firewood, whatever it is, extra food that just doesn't get accounted for when they, when they talk about their, you know, estimates for what things cost. Uh, things like burying power lines. And I did just want to mention real quick, Stephen, that that often comes up. It is more expensive to do transmission lines underground, mm-hmm. but it can be done. And that, that is, I mean, you know, best practice going forward, certainly for um, new developments, you know, to the extent they can bury those lines, they should be done. There is some environmental disruption from doing that in, in terms of a retrofit. Um, if you've got above ground lines, putting them below. But it's definitely something we should consider because if we can't figure out how to keep these above ground transmission lines in operation and how to get them up and running again after an outage quickly, we have to look at alternatives. And one of those would be, yes, you know, burying those power lines is, is a, a good way to go forward. Yeah, yeah. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome sure. to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Uh, your guest mentioned something um, that I'm weighing, and that is whether or not I should invest in a generator. We don't have um, these power outages frequently, but when we do have them, I got a dump of freezer full of meat. Mm-hmm. So is it worth the investment that can be several thousand dollars to keep my refrigerator, freezer, as well as my iPhone <laughs> right, your iPhone, of course. Uh, Bernadette, I appreciate the call. Uh, Nick, is, that, is this something that we should be, even as a matter of public policy, considering uh, you know subsidies for or the encouragement of people being able to, to, I guess, live for a time off the grid because the grid itself is not as reliable as it should be? I, I mean, I'm I'm all about um, you know planning and you know being self sufficient, but you know for a lot of people it just isn't. It's even expensive. To spend three, yeah, mm-hmm. even to spend three or four hundred dollars on a small gasoline generator where you could perhaps keep your freezer running, you know, maybe run a, a few lights and things, charge your phone. I mean, that's helpful, but um, you know, you typically can't run a furnace off of that. You know, you'd have to have an electrician come and specially wire things, and and that's you know again several hundred dollars to do that. 
for a whole um, whole house, those standby generators, which some of my neighbors have, and believe me, I'm very jealous of them <laughs> at the moment. Um, you know, they've invested, you know, probably $10,000 in some cases for this, the whole house natural gas generator that, that kicks on as soon as you lose power. Again, that is not not even in the cards for most people. And so I, I don't think we should be putting this on individuals to have to, you know, dip into their, their pockets to, you know, make sure that you have power restored after, again, these things happen. We understand that there will be outages that do occur, but they need to get back, you know, within a day, you know, to have this length of time is really just catastrophic for so many people. And so, so that's where, again, I think we can't put it back on individuals in this case. It has to be the responsibility of the utility company. And again, there are many other utility companies out there that do this better. So, you know, whether it's looking at, uh, and I just, I want to say real quick before I forget, you know, DTE and consumers, they're very effective at spreading their money around. They donate to almost all, you know, candidates for office and most of our elected officials, um, you know, including people that are coming out and saying positive things about the Public Service Commission and how they can have a better role, uh, like Governor Whitmer, right? I mean, they've taken campaign donations from Detroit Edison from DTE. And so that's something that I talk to candidates for office about, you know. Are you taking money from them? And if so, is that going to influence your decision when it comes to things like legislation requiring that they either get people's power back on a reasonable schedule or they give us a significant rebate? As Congresswoman Tlaib said, you know, 25 bucks or whatever it is after you know, 120 hours without power, that's an insult. That is just an insult um, to, to your ratepayers, to your customer base. And it holds us back as a region. So I know we don't have time to get into it, Stephen, but I mean, this is an economic problem. There's, you know, grocery stores, gas stations that, that have been out, with, out of power. They're not, they're not making money. They're, they're having food spoilage on a massive scale there as well. All that stuff adds up, and it's because of the unreliability of this grid, which, again, can be fixed. We see it done in other states. Um, we've got a problem here with our utility companies, and, and they need to do better. So, so we're running out of time, of course, but uh, quickly talk about what, what would, would we have to do if we wanted to move to publicly owned utilities here in Michigan how could we as citizens make that happen? That, that would be you know, a state legislative change. Um, we have um, state law that gives authority for how our utilities currently operate. Um, you know, there's some good reasons to have a, a grid that we all pay into and, and we, all, we all share. You know, there, there's good reasons to have that spreading those costs around a, a customer base. You know, we don't want to get to a, a, a place where you know, I can afford power and Stephen, you can afford power, but the person across the street can't, right? Like we want to make this something that is affordable and accessible because it is, it's necessary for us, for us to live. It really is. Um, And so it does make sense to have utility companies that service a a large area of people and a large number of customers. If we were to shift to a public utility model, that would necessitate a change at the state state level um, to have, you know, state laws um, to, to, to change the current regulation of Detroit Edison and consumers are publicly regulated. And, and you think that this would, would be different? We would have fewer outages and people would be reconnected faster if it were publicly owned? Well, the advantage there would be accountability, um, you know, as, as Congresswoman Tlaib mentioned, also um, uh, Congresswoman Slotkin mentioned earlier, you know, with with the current structure, there's a lack of accountability, a lack of information. They only have to disclose so much at shareholder meetings. They only have to disclose so much at the Public Service Commission. And the final thing I will say is there's a lot of litigation over these rates. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about how, you know, when DTS for rate increase, it doesn't just happen. There, there are rate cases that, that are processed sure. through the Public Service Commission where environmental groups and others intervene to try and say, look, 
you know, you can't you can't keep raising rates and providing substandard service. Uh, we've, we've got to come up with a better way. So I, I, I did want to say that there are some some current steps for accountability, but not nearly enough. So I think a public utility that provides us more accountability, more options for the public to engage. Okay, Nick Shrek, uh, always great to have you here. Hope your power Thanks, comes back soon, and hope the Before other the next ice storm. Yeah, right. The <laughs> other hundred sixty-eight thousand folks who are suffering as well. We hope uh, that things work out soon for them as well. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to discuss the pros and cons of investing a lot of public money into the district of Detroit to change that landscape and make it more attractive to more people. This is 1019 WDETFM. We'll talk again tomorrow.